We've been talking about sacred questions. A couple weeks ago, I told you the story of 2015 in my life when I was wrestling with some discernment about where to go with my work and how I found myself in the office of an 80-year-old Jesuit priest, theologian, and spiritual director. And spiritual direction is this discipline that goes way back for some traditions in Christian faith where you meet with someone and their job is to help you pay attention to what God's doing or calling you toward. And, you know, I went in there with lots of expectations for fountains of wisdom and input, and all I got from this guy was question after question after question after question. First meeting and every meeting I had with him. I mentioned, too, that it's not just uh, Jesuit spiritual directors that practice this kind of sacred questioning, but that Quakers for centuries have had a way of asking sacred questions to help a member of their community discern where God's leading them. And then I pointed out that really it's not just the Jesuits and the Quakers, but it's all over the scriptures that often the way that God breaks into a life or leads a life isn't with a directive, isn't with just a, here's the facts, here's what you're supposed to do. Often it's God either like through the prophetic voice or through the, through the, the words spoken straight to a character or through Jesus asking sacred questions. And so we've been trying to not just talk about sacred questions, but we've been trying to let ourselves be asked these sacred questions. Like to open ourselves up to be interrogated by questions like, where are you? A question about how are you hiding? And what are you hiding behind? And what's preventing you from showing up? It's a question about the temptation to try to clean up before we show up and perhaps the invitation to show up exactly as you are, the good, the bad, the ugly, and let God take it from there. We heard the question last week, what do you want? We talked about the complicated nature of desire. We observed that there are certainly unworthy desires in our lives, small desires, selfish desires, destructive desires. There are certainly things that we want that aren't worth wanting. But we also observed that Jesus keeps asking, what do you want? Which suggests that maybe the answer to unworthy desire isn't to cut ourselves off from desire, but to go more deeply into it, to hear the things that our hearts actually want the most to be open about those things, to listen to those things, and to let them tell us a little bit about who we are and where we're going. Well, those are the two questions that also feature prominently in our tables that we keep talking about that we'd love to invite you into. So we got through those, but it's Labor Day weekend, and we have like a bonus week, so we thought we'd do a bonus question. You guys up for a bonus question? Yeah, excellent, cool. Uh, let's do a bonus question. To get into it, I'm gonna start in uh, one of the Gospels called Luke. Luke is one of the four stories in the New Testament that tells the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, right? So in Luke's Gospel, there's a moment toward the end where Jesus has been crucified and resurrected, and there's this series of resurrection appearances where the, the raised up Jesus uh, encounters his, his friends, his followers, his disciples. They're fascinating narratives. There's all sorts of confusion and excitement and pandemonium going on in these moments with the resurrected Jesus. And I want to look at one of those moments in Luke chapter 24. A sacred question bubbles up in the middle of this exchange. Watch this. Jesus himself stood among them, this is his friends, and he said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and they thought that they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, why are you frightened? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. This next sentence, by the way, is very peculiar. We're gonna look at it later on today. While in their joy, they were disbelieving and still wondering, 
Very confusing sentence, right? He said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and ate in their presence. That's it, that's the passage. And the question that I wanna pull out of that is when Jesus asked, what are you frightened of? Or to be a little more direct about it, what are you afraid of? That's the question we wanna hear today. What are you afraid of? We wanna talk about fear. The way that fear drives us, shapes us, the ugly stuff that comes from fear and the possibility that Jesus wants to have a conversation with us about it, that he wants us to look at it, to work through it. Now, uh, to level the playing field and to create a little solidarity in the room, I thought first, let's just do a little survey of some of the kind of everyday fears that shape a lot of us. If, if something that I name here is something that you have any kind of fear of, will you just make some noise so that the rest of us know that we're not alone, okay? Does anybody have a fear of snakes? Yes, That's, I did that on Thursday and somebody immediately shouted, yep. I made a joke about exposure therapy and suggested I might have snakes under the drum set, but that didn't go over very well Thursday night, so we'll pretend that I didn't say that, okay? Um, anybody have a fear of small spaces, claustrophobia? Anybody get weird about that? Yeah. Um, on that note, has anybody been to Mammoth Cave in Kentucky? Yeah. Fat Man's Misery? Yeah, so there's a passageway in Mammoth Cave which is very, very inappropriately called Fat Man's Misery. It seems really unfair. But it's a very, very skinny space. And I remember being a super skinny little like twig-like kid and still being absolutely terrified walking through that space in Mammoth Cave. Uh, anybody have a fear of like, like a really intense sort of hyper-awareness of germs? Couple of us, okay, that's fair. Um, what about heights? Anybody get a little nervous? Yeah, okay. I have that. You see these, uh, these uh, I call them the, the hipster bulbs, the Edison bulbs that we have hanging in our space here, right? Well, when we were like turning the space into what it is now, we had a scissor lift in here to, to get up there and install these lights. And guys, I couldn't handle the scissor lift. It's like 12 feet up in the air and I actually like couldn't, I couldn't stay up there. I had to ask other people to do it. Um, what about spiders? Anybody have a fear of spiders? <laughs> All right, amen. All right, we won't talk about it any further. Anybody have a fear of public speaking? Okay, interesting, because on Thursday I asked and it was dead silent. I thought that makes sense, because I've just asked in a large room full of people, if anybody has a fear of public speaking, please speak out. Which is not fair, but apparently there's some brave people in this room who are willing to confront their fear. Well done. I don't have a fear of public speaking per se, which is probably a good thing, but I will say that in the last 15 years of my life, by far, the most recurring nightmares I have involve me showing up on a stage to preach either being naked or dropping an F-bomb. <laughs> it's actually true. I wake up like in a sweat over and over again from dreams where I'm out in the middle of a stage naked or dropping swear words. I don't know where that's coming from. And don't do any kind of analysis on that, okay? Let's just, <laughs> let's just move on, okay? Uh, so those are the kind of the kind of fears that a lot of us carry, and I, I don't mean to make light of them because I, I actually know that if, if you're afraid of one of those things that I named, it, it might be a, a really serious thing for you to work through. So I, I don't really want to make light of that, except to say that we're in it together, right? Uh, but then there are slightly more existential fears that a lot of us are, are certainly wrestling with, right? There are uh, fears of being alone, of ending up alone. There's fears of not making a significant sort of life out of the days that you have. Maybe, maybe you have this sense that there is a calling on your life but you haven't unlocked it and you're not sure that the, the, the hours that you're putting in or the days that you're living are, are living up to what you're here for and, and it's terrifying because it's as if there's like a secret plot for your life that you haven't been given access to and you're afraid that you're gonna miss it. 
Some of us have a really deep-seated fear of relationship. Maybe you've been really hurt before. Maybe there was a person, a man or a woman, maybe there were men or women who, who taught you that fear by the way that they acted toward you. And so you can get only so close before the alarm bells start going off and it gets really, really scary in those relationships. I know friends who are afraid of parenting or messing up the parenting. I know friends who are afraid of getting faith wrong, of messing up on God. And that can be like a, a very weaponized sort of fear, right? Because you can weaponize that with, with bad theology and experiences in rooms like this. There's a lot of different fears that are really not so funny for us. They're really scary, like they're really, really hard. And they're with us like in the back of our mind all the time. And sometimes they come to the front of mind and we know that they're there. We have different fears depending on how we've experienced life or how we're wired. Uh, there's a, a way of understanding our own inner world, our own sort of true self. There's a way of understanding that called the Enneagram that some in this community are raging fans of and others haven't heard of. Uh, but the Enneagram is this thing that's gained a lot of popularity lately. And it's, it's basically... Uh, it names nine different ways of being in the world or nine different stories that we tell ourselves or other people would say it's nine different ways of hiding ourselves. There's a lot of different ways of thinking about the Enneagram, but one of the things the Enneagram can do is say there's nine different core fears that drive us. And people who get into the Enneagram you usually find that there's a number that best names their own experience or inner world. And uh, so let me just show you the way the Enneagram names some different fears. And by the way, what's interesting is you can kind of correlate the sort of stereotyped behavior for each number by thinking about the fear that drives some of those things. So just like see if any of this names anything for you. Uh, in the Enneagram, if you find yourself in the one space, if that's the way that you relate in the world, you might have a fear of imperfection, of getting things wrong. Uh, ones end up often developing behaviors that look like they're like reformers. They've got to fix everything, make everything right in the world or in their household or uh, in their office. If you land in this two space, you might have a fear of being unloved or unwanted by others. And curiously, the behavior that often comes from that fear for somebody in the two space is they become really good helpers. Right? They're, just, they're, they're just always there to help you, to show up for you, and, and maybe that's a way of trying to make sure that people are going to want you around, right? If you're uh, in the three space, you might have a fear of not being valued. Often uh, the stereotypical behavior that comes out of that is a need to be successful or look successful. Sometimes they call the three the achiever. In the four space, you might have a fear of being abandoned by God or others because you're, you're too much. Although I've also seen other definitions of the four that say that the the deepest fear for the four is that they're, they're not enough, that they have some kind of deficiency that nobody else seems to have, and they're trying to cover that up somehow. Uh, if you're in the five space, this is often where I live, uh, it's a fear of not being able to function successfully in the world. That the world is either unsafe and you've got to map the world before you can enter into it, or that the world demands more from you than you have. You don't have enough energy to get through the day or to get the job done, and so you you sort of um, make sure that you can map any environment before you engage that environment so you know where the liabilities are and what it's going to ask of you. Uh, if you're in the sixth space, you might be afraid that everything will go wrong. <laughs> Sixes often um, have a really intense relationship with risk and risk mapping and risk avoiding. Uh, if you land in the seventh space, it might simply be pain. And so the behaviors that 
uh, go along with, with this sort of inner world of the seven, often look like um, jumping from one fun thing to the next fun thing, always looking ahead to the next party, the next event, as a way of not having to sit with the hard things that are happening. If you find yourself uh, identifying with an eight's way of being in the world, you might have a really deep fear of being hurt or controlled. Curiously, eights stereotypically can have a behavior that looks like bullying, but it doesn't seem to come from actually wanting to control you. It's, it's the way that I make sure that, that you're not going to control me as I'm going to control you. I'm going to launch a preemptive strike before you can come at me and try to control me or hurt me, right? And if you land in this nine space, uh, you might have a fear of being separated from others. The, the deep fear might be separation. And so the behavior of a nine often looks like peacekeeping, like don't, don't ruffle anything because I'm afraid that there's conflict or confrontation that might put distance between us. And that's gonna feel like disconnection. And so I'm just gonna sort of not, not stir the waters between us so that we can feel like we're still close, right? Now it's interesting, um, I'm not saying the Enneagram's a perfect tool, but I do think it's a helpful tool to begin to name some of our inner world. And it's interesting that, that a surface level read of the Enneagram looks like it's describing behaviors, but a deeper understanding understands that there are fears and stories and experiences underneath all of those toxic or difficult behaviors that we all put out into the world, right? Which, which raises the point that fear is high stakes. It's not just a feeling that we have, an attitude that we have, that it tends to play out in behavior, that it tends to play out on the way that we move through the world, right? And that the ugly stuff in our lives often comes from undealt with fear, right? Now, to be fair, it seems that biologically, the odds are actually stacked against us a little bit. In fact, our, our brains are really good at fear. Now, one of the ways of explaining that comes from an evolutionary account of human origins. And in this account, the explanation is, right, first of all, that we all got here, that Homo sapiens are what we are today. Because, because in this sort of slow-moving natural selection process, right, the little variations on our species that were the best fit for survival are the ones that kept passing on their genes, right? That's the sort of evolutionary account of how we get here. And in this account of how we got here, you have to go back a ways, right? And imagine Joe and John are two like primitive predecessors to Homo sapiens as we have them today, right? You got Joe and John and they're walking through the woods and Joe has a brain that for whatever sort of genetic fluke or reason has a brain that's really good at noticing the good and the beautiful, right? So that's Joe. And then you got John and for whatever reason of sort of genetic manipulation or fluke or whatever, he's got a brain that's really good at picking up threats, right? So you have these two different brains in these two different bodies walking through the forest and imagine Joe stumbles upon a flower and Joe is just absolutely caught up and raptured with the sight of this flower, right? I mean, he, he's smelling the flower and he's seeing the colors of the flower and he's thinking about the beautiful life that the flower represents. And then he sits down in the lotus position and starts meditating on the flower. So he starts like levitating with this enraptured experience of beauty that he's having, right? It's this incredible sort of effort of meditation on the good. But what he doesn't realize is there's literally a saber tooth six inches beyond the flower just salivating, waiting to attack him, right? At the same time, John is right there next to him, and John does not have a brain that's especially tuned into the good or the beautiful, but he does have a brain that's really good at spotting threats. So what happens, right? John runs, right, and leaves Joe to meditate and then be mauled, right? Well, you can imagine if you play that out again and again and again and again, you're going to get brains that tend to favor threat assessment over the appreciation of the good and the beautiful, right? And whether you agree with that origin story of how our brains got here, it's, it's just absolutely empirically true and verifiable that the brains that we have today are really good at paying attention to threats. 
Threats get our energy, they get our attention, they, they, they do things physiologically to us, right? In a way that the beautiful doesn't have such an immediate grip. That's, that, that, that's empirically true of the brains that we have today. So I wanna be fair about this. One neuroscientist says that essentially the brain is Teflon, it's slippery for good experiences, and it's Velcro for bad experiences. So the good comes into your life and tells you something about the nature of the world or of God or reality as it is, right? And it just slips right on past your brain and you keep on going as if it hadn't come into your life, right? But the bad comes in and it's like Velcro and our brains grab those experiences. We remember these experiences. Trauma starts getting worked up in our bodies from these experiences. These experiences actually get lodged in our bodies. It's the power of the, of the way that we are wired. So I wanna be fair and observe that we're sort of teed up for fear, that we've got some things to overcome if we're gonna deal with fear. Now, um, you take a brain like that, that's really good at catching, remembering, and holding on to negative or fearful experiences. You take a brain like that, and then you put it in a body that lives a few years in life, in the world that we live in today, with imperfect families and bullies on the playground, troubling experiences in the news, like you play that out, right? And these personal experiences married to these brains of ours, and it's no wonder that we're afraid, right? It's not just personal experiences. It's not just your family, though. Uh, we should call out the fact that religious environments are often fueled by fear. Like how many pulpits have a voice standing behind them who is personally afraid and who thinks that the message that we have for one another is it's dangerous out there, be afraid out there, it's getting bad out there, right? I mean, this is not uncommon in these kinds of experiences. You take, it's getting bad out there on top of um, describing a certain posture in God that doesn't look very much like Jesus. You combine, like, it's getting bad out there with really bad theology. Because, by the way, good Christian theology is that God looks like Jesus. That's a great starting point for Christian theology, okay? And bad Christian theology is to paint a picture of God that doesn't look much like Jesus. So you take a bad picture of God that often gets preached from these pulpits, and you combine it with a, it's getting bad out there. You've got everything to be afraid of, right? The world that you're living in right now, be afraid of it. The God that you're going to meet, be afraid of him, right? Like, that's a lot of powerful fear that gets stirred up in spaces like this. Of course, it's not just personal experiences and families and religious environments, right? Then you take the media, the digital environment that we're living in today. And you take the power and the impact of cable news, just ask how we are being formed by it. Let's remind ourselves that 24-7 cable news was not a thing very recently in human history, right? News went from a few minutes with a, with a print newspaper to 24-7, 365 visceral images, which are designed to keep you watching because these are for-profit companies who make their bank by selling commercials and they need eyes in front of the screens to get you the money, right? So of course there's motivation. I don't care if you like your news liberal or conservative. I don't care what network you watch. Let's just observe that we are being shaped by companies who have economic incentive to put fearful images in front of us because those are the things that keep us watching. It's the way our brains are made. I mean, you think about that for a minute. It's not that different from drug dealing. They hook us, they hold us, they keep our attention. I think I've mentioned to you before that as an exercise, I try to check Fox News and CNN.com every day just for a minute because that's about all I can handle. 
I do that because I do want to be aware of what's going on in the world, but I more want to be aware of how we are being formed. Even South and City Church, I want to be aware of how we are being formed by these lenses, these narratives, right? And just take a minute sometime, just a minute, and then get off of it. But take a minute sometime and just go to foxnews.com and cnn.com and just survey the headlines and ask yourself, what kind of fearful language is being used? Ask yourself, oh, that one incident of violence perpetrated, say, between one person and another person in one county in one state in America in a country with 330 million people. Ask yourself, why does one act of violence perpetrated like, against one other person, how is that statistically significant in any way? Of course there are moments of violence. Of course that's the case, right? But just ask yourself, why is it that these massive companies are cherry-picking moments from lives and communities and putting them in front of all of us? What's happening to us? How afraid are we being made, right? Even today, if you looked at the news, we woke up uh, with another story of gun violence in Texas. And I don't mean to make light of that or suggest these are insignificant trends. But it's one thing to be informed. It's another thing to be formed by fear. To have our brains gripped with selective stories that keep telling us about the darkest and the worst, but fail to tell us the whole story of our world or what it means to be human. Then we wonder why we are so afraid. Uh, Google has a tool that I love to use sometimes called the Ngram Viewer. And what Google has done is they have cataloged every word in print that they could get their hands on from the last 200 years. And by print, they mean both paper and digital, right? So they've scanned every book and newspaper article and journal they could find from the last 200 years, combined with everything on the internet that we read. And they've compiled all this, and then they've been using their, uh, their supercomputers, apparently, <laughs> to, to, to uh, quantify the frequency with which a word is used relative to all the other words in any given year. So you can find out which words are looming largest in our language and whether there's change happening over time, right? So let me show you the graph for when you look at 200 years and the word threat. Isn't that crazy? Between the 1920s and 1940s, apparently the language of threat became more and more common for us and the stories that we tell and the way that we describe the world to the point that it's just like way off and up and to the right there, right? So if you feel more afraid today, I would say, I get it. We live in an environment that is stoking these fears. Uh, curiously, there's also all sorts of other research that suggests that Americans' perception of the risk of their world is, is like inversely proportional to the actual risk that we live in, that we are living in safer and safer times, believe it or not. Like over the course of human history, we live in one of the safest times in the Western world that we've ever known, and yet we are more afraid than ever. You survey an American in the 1950s and 60s and ask them their perceived risk of all the kind of terrible things that you would hate happening to you, and their perception is, is way lower than it is today, even though the risks were way higher than for all sorts of terrible things. We're being made afraid, and it's not, it's not innocent. It's shaping how we behave. It's shaping how we view one another. It's actually shaping the world that we create. I remember I was in middle school and I read a book, it's a novel that's placed in South Africa in the years leading up to apartheid. And the book is called Cry the Beloved Country by an author named Alan Payton. There was something about this book that just gripped me. It's uh, actually, I keep a, a stack of very few books in my fireplace mantle, ones that I reread and ones that have really shaped me and it's, it's one of those. 
And uh, Alan Payton tells the story of uh, violence growing and fear growing and division growing in, in pre-apartheid South Africa. And as he describes um, this country and tells the story, every once in a while he breaks out into these sort of lyrical sort of narrative little summaries of what's happening emotionally, spiritually in the country. And there's one passage that just grips me so much that it's been sort of burned into me. And this is what he says. Cry, the beloved country, for the unborn child that's the inheritor of our fear. Let him not love the earth too deeply. Let him not laugh too gladly when the water runs through his fingers, nor stand too silent when the setting sun makes red the veld with fire. Let him not be too moved when the birds of his land are singing, nor give too much of his heart to a mountain or a valley. For fear will rob him if he gives too much. And essentially, Peyton tells a story of a, of a world that is breaking, of racism and injustice that's growing, of violence that is seething in South Africa. And he says the root of it is fear. That like we make, we make peace with fear, we give harbor to fear in our lives, and the ugliest parts of ourselves come out. And so it's no wonder, it's absolutely no wonder that like Jesus wants to have a conversation with us about fear. By the way, Luke 24 is not the only place where Jesus talks about fear in his disciples. Let's look at Mark for a second. This is early in Jesus' time with his friends, and he's been teaching, and they're on a waterfront area, and we read this story. On that day when the evening come, he said to them, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. Other boats were with them, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And then the wind ceased and there was a dead calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? Now, first of all, let's give some credit to the disciples here. They're on a boat and the thing is being tossed over like they're in danger of capsizing. There's reasons to be afraid. And by the way, for Jewish people in the imagination of that era and in the sacred text that we call the Bible, the water's not just the water. A lot of us have like fantasies about going to the beach and being out on a boat, right? But for these people, the water doesn't just represent a day at the beach. The water for them is a symbol of chaos, of darkness, of unpredictable evil that could break out at any moment. Which is why, by the way, in the first chapter of the scriptures, we read about the creation accounts beginning with the Spirit of God hovering above the waters as if to say there is this sort of source of darkness and chaos in the world, but God is beginning to bring order to that, right? And at the end of the scriptures in Revelation, we read that in that great eternal future that we long for, there will be no sea. Now, if you've wondered why it is that God's gotta be such a killjoy to get rid of the beaches in eternal life, it's not about that. It's because for these people, the sea, the ocean, the waters are the place where the chaotic, unpredictable evil comes from. Okay, so in the middle of Mark's gospel, as Jesus is trying to form his friends, he's trying to lead them into the men and women that they need to be for the world, they find themselves out on the waters. That's not a coincidence, I don't think. They find themselves out on the waters, and the thing that you're afraid of out there starts to happen, which is the unpredictability becomes a threat. And at any moment, you just sense this thing could toss you overboard and your lives are at stake. And Jesus is asleep up there. Now, I have a theory about this, which is not orthodox or, or well-founded, but my theory is that Jesus is faking it. <laughs> Who sleeps on a boat that's being tossed about so much that you could die at any moment? 
My theory is that he knows that the only way for them to become who they have to be for the world, the only way for him to do what he wants to do in them is they've got to go out there to the place where the fear comes from and they've got to face it. So he has the idea, let's go out in the water, see what happens, right? It's like a team building exercise on steroids, right? And he's up there, in my view, pretending to sleep so that their fear will come to the surface and he can confront it. So the fear will come out and be there in front of them so they can see it for what it is and then he can say again, what are you afraid of? Can we talk about your fear? Because you cannot become what God needs you to become for the world if fear has a grip. Because we cannot create the kind of communities that we are here to create for the world if fear has a grip. Fear will chase out the best and bring the worst. It'll be the seed of the worst kinds of evil. And we will tell ourselves we never meant to become bad people. We never meant to hurt one another. We never meant to become violent. We never meant to become xenophobic. We never meant to become the kind of people that we have become. We were just so afraid. And I think Jesus will be there saying, yeah, that's why I've been trying to talk to you about fear because it brings out the absolute worst and we are being formed in it every day. So what are you afraid of? Is it possible that God wants to have a conversation with you about your fear? That he wants to call it out so that he can root it out? Put it in front of us so we can face it, right? Um, there's this curious thing I mentioned in Luke 24, and by the way, Alan Payton alludes to it as well in his passage from Cry the Beloved Country. Remember that weird sentence that I referred to? Let me take you back to this strange sentence in Luke 24, right? So the resurrected Christ has appeared to his friends, and they're terrified, but we read this. In one translation we read, in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering. Another translation, the NIV says, they still did not believe it, that's the resurrection, that Jesus is with them again. They still did not believe it because of joy and amazement. That's a strange sentence. They did not believe it because of joy and amazement. Now, anytime you see the translators struggling to make a sentence sound right, that's probably a sign that there's something confusing going on in the Greek or the Hebrew, right? Now, I'm not a scholar, but I have enough Greek in me to look at it for a minute. And I went back and it's a very confusing sentence in the Greek. And sometimes what you do when you've got a confusing passage or sentence is like you may not be able to nail it down perfectly, but let's just ask, what's the constellation of things that are all interacting here? Let's just put them side by side and consider them for a moment. So in this passage, we have these things, fear and disbelief and joy and amazement. Let's, let's leave that up there for a minute and just consider this, right? What did Peyton say in Cry the Beloved Country? He said, cry for the unborn child who is the inheritor of our fear. And then he names all these experiences of joy and wonder and amazement, right? He said, let him not laugh. Let him not be too glad. Let his heart not be too moved by this incredible, beautiful, wonderful world that we have been placed in. Because he seems to sense that, like, that, that where you find yourself on the verge of great wonder and awe, that might be the place where fear is most at work. And here we have the disciples facing the resurrected Christ, which means the worst thing that has ever happened to them, the most heinous, violent thing they have ever seen, the moment where their hopes died, their dreams were crushed because their, their teacher, the one they were following into a better and more beautiful world was crucified. They, they find that moment where their hopes were crushed is also the place where resurrection happened. And they're staring at the resurrected Christ, which is an invitation to wonder and awe 
It's a, it's a promise that evil is a limited resource and that love is actually a more powerful thing in the world. So that's staring them in the face. And at the same time, they're wrestling with these intense experiences of disbelief and fear. The reason I raise this is because I think fear will most reliably come up when something sacred is at stake. I think fear will most reliably come up when something sacred is at stake. Which, by the way, is why it makes sense to me that the scriptures speak of evil as being sort of personal, like having an agenda to come after you, because it just seems reliable that fear will come up the most when something sacred is at stake. And something that really matters for your life or for our world is on offer, right? So, like, I don't think you need to worry about being afraid of things that don't really matter. I don't know that fear will grip you that much. But if you are on the verge of something sacred, if you are on the edge of giving your life in love, if you are on the verge of seeing a neighbor who you have written off as a whole human being, if our world is, is actually moving toward a beautiful future where cultures come to know one another, where interaction between different people in different places is happening, where the diversity of our world is actually colliding, if that's actually sacred and beautiful, of course we are most afraid because fear reliably comes up when we are on the verge of something sacred. Are you about to quit your job to do the brave and beautiful thing that you've been called to? Yeah, of course you're afraid. You're on the verge of something sacred. Are you about to... Uh, do something vulnerable on behalf of your children who need you to be more emotionally present to them in a way that you haven't been. Of course you're terrified. You're on the verge of something sacred. Are you about to like, consider like, a wholesale reordering of your life around following Jesus? Maybe opening your heart to faith, to, to belief that's like right there at the edge and you're on, on the verge of it. Well, of course you're afraid. You're on, the, you're on the verge of something sacred. And so the disciples are there staring at the resurrected Christ. They are being confronted with something sacred and fear and disbelief and joy and amazement are all tied up together there. And Peyton says of the child that his wonder at this sacred world that we have been given, his wonder will be at stake and the fear that we are breeding in our world. If you are afraid, it's, it might be that you are on the verge of something sacred. And so, of course, Jesus wants to have a conversation with you about your fear. Now, the good news is uh, Scripture speaks of a reliable antidote to fear. It speaks of, a, of one reliable thing that will absolutely obliterate fear. We read about it in 1 John chapter 4. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Of course, the downside of this is if fear and love are incompatible and you make harbor for fear in your life, what are you, what are you ridding yourself of? Love, right? And yet, love is this reliable antidote to fear. The New Testament is a book that I find um, often really confusing. The scriptures have moments on the page where I'm like, a little lost in the weeds of what's being written. And yet, in my experience, you read the pages of Scripture, and, and one of the most predictable things is that when the Scripture turns its attention to the notion of love, it's almost as if the writers reach a higher plane, a greater clarity, like the song really starts to sing, and so you flip through the pages, and you might get lost for a moment, but then you find these moments when the writers speak of the love that they have known in Christ, and the clarity with which they speak 
suggests to me that it's, it's, it's one of the most reliable experiences that they have had in their knowledge of Christ in the world. And so they write things like what Paul writes in Romans 8 when he speaks of all these different circumstances that could breed fear for us, all these different places where fear could be located, and he says love obliterates these things. Love is more powerful than these things. He says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, some of us are terrified of death, and some of us are terrified of living, by the way. But he says neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, which is to say powers, whether cosmic or real world, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If God is love and if Jesus is the presence of God on earth, then of course Jesus wants to talk to you about your fear because he's here to cast it out and call us out to be the kind of people who step into the sacred things that are waiting for us on the other side of the things that we are afraid of. So what are you afraid of? Really, like what are you afraid of? Recently I had to confront a very real fear that has been holding me back and it's stupid and selfish and immature and I'm not proud of it, but I feel like if I'm asking you to be real about this then I should too, right? So I've had this, I've had this creative project that's been burning in my bones for a couple of years. Like it, it, it really matters to me and it, and it it's not the kind of thing that just feels like a neat idea. It feels like the kind of thing that, that, is, that, wants, that wants to happen through me, and my job is just to show up and serve it. So I've had this, this thing burning inside me, and it's emotional and intellectual, and it's um, something that I want to do, at least I think I want to do. And yet for two years, it's been on the to-do list. It's been like on my whiteboard at home, and I keep getting stuck. And then uh, one of my really close friends who's a, a voice of accountability and encouragement in my life, um, he and I were talking about this again, and he was just kind of asking, like, what, what, what's going on, dude? <laughs> what's the problem, you know? And I remember confessing to him for the first time what I had actually recently realized, that there's a fear involved, and the fear is very specific. It comes from this, that for the last several years of my life, it, most of the things that I've tried to sort of put out in the world or create have gone pretty well. That's, the, that's, that's been my experience. And I don't say that in a prideful way. That's been as much luck as anything else. But like, I started preaching and then I got to preach on big stages. Then we started the church and here we are. And frankly, things have gone well and I've been able to feel like a successful person in those things. And the thought of tackling this creative project which has no guarantees and which is the kind of project that mostly fails in the world, the kind of project that mostly goes out and lands with a thud and is never heard from again. It's that kind of project. I think what I really realized is I'm afraid to put something out there that doesn't keep this track record going and has me confronting all over again concerns about inferiority or insecurity. I think that's actually what's going on. It was really, really important for me to name that because once I named it, I thought, oh crap, now I have to do it. Because I think Jesus wants to talk to us about our fear and the ways that it's holding us back from who we are here to be and what we are here to do. And the ways that it is the seed of all kinds of dark, evil things. So maybe you feel like you are out there on the water a little bit and the boat is about to be capsized and you feel like God is just quiet. 
seems like he's negligent. Like he's abdicated his care for you. What if he's just pretending to be asleep? Because <laughs> the thing he most desperately wants for you is to confront your fear, to make you brave. So I want to um, just carve out a brief space for, for prayer before we go. And uh, if you want to join me in that, you can. If prayer is not a word that works for you, that's okay. It could be a meditation, a reflection, uh, a quiet moment in a busy day. Uh, but in this, uh, as we often do, I, I would like to just invite us to find ourselves more personally in this story for a moment. And so if you want to join me in that, uh, you can close your eyes or do whatever sort of helps you be present to a, a reflection. And then I'll lead us into this prayer. God, I pray that you would help us to hear this sacred question. To trust that you are speaking to us in love. Like a good mother or father or friend or teacher who sees more in us than we see in ourselves. God, perhaps we find ourselves uh, out on that boat with Jesus. And as happens so often out there, a storm has come from nowhere. We're aware that beneath us there's this sort of inky black depth that threatens to swallow us up. And the boat seems smaller than the waves that are coming over the side. It's tilting back and forth. And we wonder where you are, whether you're paying attention. Because if you love us, wouldn't you want to keep things safe? And yet, as you're, you're up there sleeping, and we think of what little we know of you, we think perhaps it's true that even more than you want us to be safe, you want us to be brave. You want us to grow up. And so when we finally sense that we have your attention, we hear you ask us this question, what are you afraid of? I pray that as you bring our fears to the surface, you would bring that reliable antidote called love to bear on everything that's terrified within us. I pray that we would know in our bones that at the beginning of this story is love and at the end of this story is love and that love is the realest thing in this story because you are love and anything that isn't you will eventually fall away and be found wanting. So I pray that we would be so invested in love that the fear would have no room in our lives. Not that fears wouldn't come up from time to time, but that they'd never be given the power to steer us, to lead us. I pray that we would see clearly the ugly things that fear creates. I pray that we would sense, be aware that we are being formed in fear every day. 
that we'd be awake and alert enough to reject that and rather be formed in the love that you're always giving us. That the love might make us brave and chase out the fear and call us out into the lives that we are here for. So God, talk to us about our fear, but then talk to us about your love. That we would trust that there is no height nor depth, nothing past, present, or future, no power in this world or in the cosmos, no regret, no mistake, nothing that could keep your love away from us, that we would open our hearts to it in a way that would heal us. God, we thank you for Jesus who comes and leads us to face our fears. It seems that you haven't given up on us growing up. We love you for that. And we pray through Christ. We all said, amen. If you're able, will you stand to your feet? Uh, This is the end of our Sacred Questions series, which might be a relief to some of you. Uh, Next week, we'll begin a new conversation that'll take us toward baptisms in October. We're very excited about that. Uh, But today, may you hear the voice of God who asks you to confront your fear. May you trust that he calls you out because he loves you. If you find yourself on open water alone and afraid, May you believe that even there he is strong enough to calm the waters, but perhaps only after he lets you confront the fears that are driving you. May you be made brave that you might give your life to the world in beautiful ways. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you guys. See you next week.